0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwikwetlem peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend, Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politico. Today is August 31st, 2023.
1: I'm Scott Lunderboom.
0: And I'm Ian Bushfield. We're back for the end of the summer edition as we continue to round up a bunch of stories when some things happen, but nothing really big is happening. Uh, enjoy this listening over your long weekend as we get into interest rates, uh, money that the province has, immigration. Canada has people. And just all kinds of other things, like the Emergencies Act. We get to finally talk about that, but not really. Patreon.com slash politicos. Let's start in the province of BC. The Premier David Eby has written to Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem saying, please consider the human costs and don't do another rate hike in the next month, like you seem to be lining up to do
1: yeah, so uh turns out david e b and uh Pierre Paglia have uh, fairly similar outlooks on central bank independence. I
0: think is... that's woefully unfair in the specifics here uh, I, david e b so has sure. not said he should be fired, that's like a not just subtle rhetorical difference. This is david e b expressing an opinion. On, I mean, it's what pretty, impact should be considered?
1: It's pretty clear this is a case of a first minister trying to exert pressure on the direction the Bank of Canada goes in terms of what it decides to do with respect to interest rates. Now, yeah, it's not like as full bore, um, you know, aggressive the way Pierre Poliev is on pretty much everything, but. Fun. It functionally conveys a similar message with respect to whether the Bank of Canada should be considering political factors and the wishes of politicians and what they want when setting interest rates.
0: The Bank of Canada does consider political factors because it's a human institution that is therefore inherently political as all institutions are. To pretend otherwise is to ignore the fact that people exist.
1: It's, I mean, sure, if you want to Go all post bar and say like nothing is fully independent. I mean, sure, but like we might as well say court shouldn't be independent or anything else at that point. Like, I think we recognize that institutions that are set up to be arm's length and independent should generally not have politicians trying to influence their outcome on that front, and to do so does chip away at the independence. There's nothing
0: really chipping away at the independence, though. He has expressed the opinion of his government on this, that he has no ability to actually change the outcome, or even really force it, right? He has acknowledged in this letter that the uh, governance is responsible to the federal government, if anyone, but he just wants to highlight the fact that in the letter, he points to two things in specific, rate impacts on British Columbians that if rates go up, it's going to impact people with mortgages, people who have loans, including small businesses, and people who are uh, unable to weather another increase in interest rate hikes. And he also ties it to the cost of building new homes because whether those houses are built by the private sector or the public sector, they need to take out loans generally to get them built. No one's just sitting on millions of dollars to build a house. So that money has to get loaned from somewhere, and a higher interest rate makes that more difficult. And we are in a housing crisis. And those facts are both true.
1: Right. But also, you know, the Bank of Canada employs a legion of economists who already consider all these factors. So at best, this is. Uh, Evie telling the Bank of Canada to consider things it's already considering and is therefore empty signaling on the part of the Premier. And at worst, it's not
0: I- that much signaling to be fair because it was just a letter. I did scan the government's uh, press page today and they didn't actually even put out a press release by this. So Richard Zussman got it and put it on Twitter and that's where we're reporting it from.
1: Well, and I think now? there was one Another or two stories. Yeah. To pick it up.
0: Well. Yeah, so it wasn't like a full press push, but they did like obviously want it to get out.
1: Yeah, but like, so that I mean, the best case scenario is this is empty signaling and telling the Bank of Canada to do something to consider stuff it already does consider. But more generally, like the reason we have central bank independence is because interest rates affect the entire economy. Literally billions of transactions are influenced by how they are structured. And It goes to very fundamental things like the rate of inflation in the economy. All of that is driven in part by interest rates. And and you don't want to be setting those just to help one particular industry that happens to be politically uh, important at the time. Like in this case, home building is uh, on that. Which is why we put a wall between the Bank of Canada and... uh, the politicians, so they aren't tempted to tinker with economy-wide interest rates to help narrow subsets of the economy. So, like, in this case, yeah, it isn't him saying, oh, you must do this because I have the power to compel you to do that, which would be the strong version of uh, undermining the independence here. But it's still a case of, you know, using his bully pulpit and putting pressure as, like, a First Minister to try and get a specific outcome. And, you know, it's the softer, more informal version of it, but it's still, at the end of the day, a case of applying pressure, just in a an informal way rather than a formal way. It's
0: not going to make a difference, though.
1: I mean, we would hope right? not.
0: It's dumb. He put out a letter. I don't really care about it. I think you know it's fine. It doesn't offend me. I'm fine with it's,
1: it. It's not great. I don't think like,
0: it's a good use of time. But it's not the end of democracy and uh, the neoliberal order, Scott.
1: <laughs> no, it's still. But, you know, things don't have to be maximally bad to still be not good. Uh which I think is pretty clear case of. And uh, I mean, probably the end result is now Pierre Polyev has a. Uh, convenient retort any someone uh tries to criticize him on his uh statements around firing the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, he can uh now point to the NDP also uh kind of pushing for specific uh Bank of Canada policies and uh also uh not entirely respecting that uh separation. That, was that the separation
0: thing. is a very modern concept, though. Like, it's a very – it's really established in the last 30, 40 years of neoliberalism. It's
1: more like, than 30 years old. It goes back – The, like,
0: deep obsession with it, though, is pretty modern. But let's – like, this isn't the first time it's been argued about. Uh, the federal NDP, Jugmeet Singh, has questioned whether these rate hikes should continue. And, like – It's something that should be open to debate, and to shut off debate is to limit the ability of politicians to actually do their job, and Eby's job here is to advocate for British Columbians. Uh, I think he's fine doing it. It's not – and even if –
1: No, his his job is to govern British Columbia, not to uh, set monetary policy for the country. Those are different things.
0: One thing he can do though is spend the money that we have in the bank. Uh, the public accounts have come in looking at how the last fiscal year went for us. And as is every politician's favorite, uh, pastime, we got a much bigger surplus than the deficit we were expecting. So budget 2022 last year estimated that we would have an annual deficit of 5.46 billion. We actually came out with a surplus of 700 million. <laughs>
1: Wouldn't it be budget twenty twenty
0: three? I copied what these are the public accounts for twenty twenty two. Ah, okay. So for the last fiscal year, the overall budget. I looked this up uh, earlier. I think it was about seventy billion dollars for the province. So you know,
1: they were off by ten percent, roughly.
0: um, Almost. I think it was closer to seven percent in the end when I did the actual math. But yeah, it's not like a they didn't. It's not a rounding error.
1: No, it's a pretty big. Uh,
0: It gets even. Yeah, and it's even more than that. As the budget was off on both the expense and revenue side, the revenues were thirteen billion dollars higher than budgeted. Basically, everything they under budgeted. We had uh, seven point sorry, we had eight point nine billion dollars additional corporate and personal tax income. We had two point eight billion dollars additional natural gas, uh, natural resource revenue. Most of that from natural gas additional $1.2 billion from federal transfers, and just like $700 million extra came in. Uh, expenses, by contrast, were $7.8 billion higher than budgeted, and that included uh, a whole bunch of different things going over, including a $1 billion to cities that the government passed out, $500 million to try to fix BC ferries. That apparently hasn't been enough. Uh, there was the $1.5 billion in affordability benefits the top-ups to the climate action tax credit and bc affordability credits there was 1.2 billion dollars to help nonprofits buy shelters uh there was 1.5 billion dollars in payouts for the additional collective agreements that have been signed recently 500 million dollars for wildfires and 375 million in refundable tax credits and lots of other things went over um you don't love the uh
1: the spin they put on this where it's not they went over budget they've increased investments in there yeah. which is a uh, very fancy way of saying we spent more than we planned to
0: i mean some of them were like specific investments made out of budget like the cities investment fund was something that eb came in and just announced hey i'm going to cut a check to cities
1: right
0: do still, whatever you want
1: the, the but, net results they still went over budget yeah
0: and earlier they did talk about expenses being so high so uh the other good news for the province in there is the operating debt that had been established during COVID and the pandemic has been eliminated. Um, but yeah, there's an extra $5.5 billion. Or sorry, there's a surplus now of $700 million where there otherwise would have been a $5.5 billion deficit. So really good news for EB going into his fall session and,
1: yeah, and if he's his budget next year. Yeah, and if he's say, concerned about... Uh the feasibility of construction in this province. Uh, turns out there's some money available to uh, put a little subsidy on that rather than uh, tweaking interest rates for everywhere from uh, Victoria to St. John.
0: Well, as highlighted in there, there was at least $1.2 billion in direct funding to housing prob- uh, social housing issues. So they are willing to spend Ben, but yeah, they definitely need to spend more because it turns out housing is not affordable yet—not
1: by a long uh, shot. Um.
0: One of the other things that was over budget was uh, staff, <laughs> government staffing. It turned out Rob Shaw dug into the numbers and found this elsewhere through his the work he does, and he points out that over the past five months, the chiefs of staff to the various ministers, the political staffers, there's about twenty of them uh have received two pay hikes that amount to roughly 17% over the last year that makes these chief of staffs uh in many cases being paid higher than the average backbench MLA they now get 122,000 you only get 115,000 if you're an MLA with no special perks
1: so on one hand like i'm entirely fine with paying people more uh in politics it's generally not as well compensated as it should be for the actual amount of work and um, you know, career risks and everything else that come with it. 17% a lot for a, a set of pay heights, and I don't know. Like, in theory, MLA should be the, uh, the more important of the two things rather than just minister's office uh, senior political servants. This just seems to be yet another step on the slow march of the irrelevancy of legislatures compared to the executive in Canada broadly. Why, that's like, that's probably one of the, not great. One
0: of the issues that came up, yeah, one of the issues that came up here for why I think the chiefs of staff are now exceeding uh, some MLA salaries is because MLAs opted to freeze their salaries last year in a show of solidarity with struggling British Columbians and I think it was that political calculation where they said you know what our, chief, our chiefs of staff probably won't get as much attention if they get a hike but if MLA's hike pay goes up that gets noticed um, Rob Shaw noticed yeah I don't know if it's going to get outside the ORCA's coverage um, but yeah Rob Shaw also points out uh these raises kind of came for two reasons. First was the April 1st hike was due to an order John Horgan had made that basically tied increases in the political staffing salaries to some of the public sector unions. And so if the unions got a raise, the political staffers who aren't unionized get a raise. And I can see the argument for that, but then they're also like just benefiting from the collective work being done by the union. I think the raise there is justifiable, but EBE gave them a secondary raise on July 1st to try to make their pay more competitive, which I guess it is if you are bumping them. Uh, Notably, most of the public sector unions that settled deals in the last year or so got about a 7% raise due to inflation over this last year. So tough pill to swallow if you are not one of those 20 chiefs of staff. The young hyperpartisans, as Rob Shaw describes them, um, I think most of them are in their 30s and 40s, or so. So
1: young compared to Rob Shaw, I guess.
0: Yeah, young is such a relative term these days. Um, the other thing Rob Shaw notes is that these salaries uh, weren't easily posted publicly. The NDP used to, or the government used to, include on the websites when these jobs were available. the the actual dollar salary that they would be paid. And the NDP stripped that out of the job postings, only including the salary band. And that's bad for the obvious transparency reason here, in that we don't know what they're making until it turns out two years later when the public accounts come through. But it's also just bad from an equity point of view. I've I've read a lot of things about the importance of including salaries in job postings. I think it matters a little bit less in the senior positions, but if it's a fixed number, there's no reason not to include it.
1: Yeah, it's one of those cases where uh, the the NDP's values don't always survive the contact with the uh, incentives of running an organization. And yeah, that's just uh, probably the latest example of that. Get rid of the pay transparency in this.
0: Anyway, congrats to those who got the raise, uh, patreon.com slash politicoast. Speaking of lack of alerts, there is a story from Penny Daflos in CTV News about residents in the North Swap who have pointed out that when the alert-ready emergency notification was supposed to go off... During the wildfires in the past few weeks in that region, a lot of people weren't getting the texts. This sounds familiar.
1: Yeah, this is yeah hardly the first time the Alert Ready system has been in the news for uh, well not be as a, not alerting as many people as it should.
0: It sounds like the Alertable app was relatively. Effective. But the alert ready didn't go out until later in the day due to internal policies of the Columbia Shoeswap Regional District. Uh, and just like, I guess, the slow rollout we've been seeing on technology around emergency alerts in this province, even though we've now had quite a few.
1: Yeah, this is something it's I still do not fully understand why the government has been so slow and reluctant on rolling this stuff out for a while. They basically refused to use the system for anything but tsunamis, which was frankly a baffling decision and completely undermines the point of having an, uh, an alert ready system like this. And now here it's not going out and not working properly. Like this really should be, one of the top things to do to make sure is working if you're the uh minister of emergency preparedness
0: i guess one of the specific issues here is if you don't have an lte or 5g networked phone or you are i guess out of lte range which actually is a significant chunk of this province yeah like um, fair enough you won't get the alert
1: Fair enough there's not a cell tower you're within range of really. that that's something you just can't really help um
0: well you might have cell service but you'd be on 3G
1: yeah well some
0: of the older stuff yeah
1: which was going to be my next point on there are other means of sending out information over uh cell service systems that don't rely on 5G and i don't know maybe uh, a simple text message to accompany that would also solve that very obvious problem in a very simple way. And it's weird they didn't do it here.
0: My favorite part in this article is them saying that CTV News themselves were in and out of evacuation order areas throughout this, and they saw, saw checkpoints, but at no point did their crews get an emergency alert. So at least like, the checkpoints exist.
1: Yeah, So it's and the CTV crews, they probably have... Uh... LTE or five G phones on them. I, I I doubt they're all running flip phones.
0: More work to be done.
1: So yeah, it's a weird thing. The government that uh, they're the government is continuing to fall down on a very basic information distri- distribution technology uh, during important emergency situations.
0: Well, the government was also not speaking enough with a couple First Nations. The Lilwat and Nkwotkwa First Nations last Thursday announced that they are shutting down the Upper Joffrey Lake Provincial Park until Truth and Reconciliation Day, September 30th. And this announcement caught the government off guard as the First Nation basically just set up their own checkpoints and Block the park as visitors were coming in. The nations had been specifically concerned as they yes, that's and, the go- and up they up. have managed to come to an it's agreement not. with the government now that they will open it over the long weekend for people who want to visit there. But it's flagged by the nations as a sensitive cultural area that's part of their territories and the increasing amount of tourist traffic through there has been creating additional conflicts, especially with many of the indigenous people in the area who are trying to conduct ceremony and they liken it to tourists trampling through your church during like the holy month, which I think is actually a pretty apt analogy. And I guess the big thing I see here is just like a real challenge for the government to, you know, talks the talk about reconciliation and has done some of the legislative work, but just the like, nation to nation dialogue completely failed here. And it seems like it's being blamed on BC Parks, who, like, didn't return the calls from these nations who had been complaining for a while about the traffic there. But it's a bad look for the government that wants to look good here.
1: Yeah, it's not great to be caught off guard. It's not great for the uh, people who had uh, reservations to use the park at the time uh, and who suddenly had that uh, cut off. Like, yeah, it's just a mess on there.
0: Yeah, no, much more to say. I'll put the link to the a nice long uh, Vancouver Sun article in the show notes. That's worth reading on this to get a couple extra expert takes on it, but... We'll see how this moves forward, and it's likely this is probably going to be the first of many cases where this rises up. Let's jump to federal politics then and start with the federal NDP who had their secret sources talk to CBC News and hint that they are going to push hard for such things as a couple more checks for Canadians and affordable housing to be built a little faster.
1: Well, I guess that they've uh, finally started uh, tempering their expectations to what they are realistically going to be able to pressure. God, the government that was their to entire do. supply
0: and confidence agreement. It's was ma- basically just like, here is the Liberals' platform. We are going to make them do some of that.
1: I mean, even that it was. Uh- significantly more ambitious than they actually managed to pull out of it. Uh, like the, the NDP tried to talk a good game about uh, pressuring the liberals to do stuff, hold them to account. Well, they, I think mean, they've done a few things, but they have not been particularly effective at steering the general direction of the government. So, yeah, maybe Nets for GST credit check yeah. is something they can actually get out of this. The uh, like the Liberals are not looking for an election right now. They're in a pretty tough spot, but it's not like the NDP is doing a huge amount better. And considering the uh, current polling outlook has conservative majority as the uh, likely outcome if Canada was to uh, go to the polls right now, there is not a lot of actual leverage that can be... Uh, put on the government when it comes to uh, confidence because the NDP would be signing their own death. Warrant I, mean, I think that. the
0: NDP could come out stronger. Like people want to see action. And if the NDP actually took a position of being, we are the party that is pushing substantive real action from this government, or we will go to the polls and we will, you know, tell you how we will deliver it at this point. I don't care. Just something. That can at least make them competitive or interesting. Instead, it's like they could be competitive competitive. with the liberals. They already are in the under 35 range. But
1: yeah, like right. Yeah. uh, There's actually a poll that just dropped today. If millennials were the only ones voting, you would have a conservative majority with a uh, NDP official opposition. If the popular vote was how
0: our seats were delivered. We don't know how they would vote in each individual writing. Obviously.
1: Yeah, I, I'm basically taking the this is what yeah. the breakdown would get if you just apply uh, it currently. In the, yeah,
0: yeah the the sources in this CBC article aren't surprisingly saying you know, like you said, no one's got an appetite for an election. I think the funniest most terrifying thing in here is quote some sources also suggest the u.s election next fall could affect the political dynamic on this side of the border especially if former donald trump former president donald trump returns to power in other words the liberals are hoping donald trump wins to like give them a polling boost
1: i mean that absolutely tracks i'm not surprised banking
0: your political fortunes Uh, on that menace getting back in is desperate and sad and
1: which kind of describes where the liberal party is right now yeah sunny ways have uh long clouded over
0: but thankfully everyone can still go on on facebook and share cat pictures but not the news
1: yeah uh so we now actually have a sense of what facebook's news ban is doing to their traffic uh turns out the answer is not much uh so a uh, third party monitoring uh firm uh similar web as well as uh data.ai looked at uh what was happening with uh, meta's web traffic after they implemented the ban and turns out it's pretty much holding steady so it doesn't look like uh they're suffering particularly strongly on the business side from uh their decision to limit uh what was getting posted on their platform with respect to uh news links uh meta had previously said that uh links to news articles make up less than 3% of the content in facebook feeds so in line with that and uh overall that i think is going to uh, make it so that if the government was hoping that uh, meta would blink on this, I think it's uh, looking increasingly unlikely. There's
0: some other interesting data in this Globe and Mail piece. They talk about studies from Reuters Institute and Pew Research Center that suggests there has been a dramatic reduction in news consumption via social media. uh, Even before Facebook fully pulled the plug on news, Uh, Sharing of news sites was down 35% and down 74% since 2020. That sounds like it's largely due to Facebook, you know, how they've been throttling news over the last few years. I think I've seen that, like you just don't see news posts even before the ban. Um, Interestingly, apparently Facebook does disclose in the U.S. who the most popular domains are, and 13 of the 20 most viewed domains in the U.S. are news articles. And eighteen of the twenty top individual links were to news articles. So news does do well in the states, despite Meta's claims. But I also do get why they've done what they've
1: done. The, the web is a done. very the web is a very big place. Like top, do- now you can be a top domain and still have a small share of the overall traffic.
0: If Facebook were much more transparent, we could have a much better sense of this, but. You know, they've made their business decisions, the government's made their legislative decisions, and the media companies who lobbied for this bed are getting to lay in it. And we're all the worse for it.
1: Which, uh, yeah, all the more reason why you should have a working uh, emergency alert system, because relying on Facebook as your uh, news distribution method was never smart. and. The various politicians tried to make a big deal of it during the uh, height of the recent fires, and that was always a stretch, but definitely the case that you want to have your own provincial system be ready to carry the weight.
0: Well, from social media to immigration and international students, following up our we discussed this previously, the talk about possibly capping international student numbers, I believe. Uh, what I think is interesting this week is we, we have a, set, a better sense of the numbers now. Immigration Minister Mark Miller has said this year there will probably be about 900,000 international students coming to Canada, which is up about three times since a decade ago.
1: But it's hosting, so that's probably newcomers plus the ones that are partway through a study program um yeah this is roughly triple what it was uh a decade ago which is crazy yeah like, this an absolutely astronomical jump
0: yeah i've looked into some of the stats for this and a lot of it's only come in the last few years and especially with like a blip for 2020 for obvious reasons um the breakdown is primarily people going to Ontario and British Columbia. And a lot of them are going to smaller colleges, whether um, private colleges in Ontario that have been given the ability to bring in international students or some public colleges here in BC as well. And a lot of them are relying it as well as publicly funded universities because international students you can charge much higher tuition to. And they're in most provinces are... Pretty hard caps on how much you can raise tuition on domestic students each year, as well as just like there hasn't been as much investment in post-secondary education in the last few decades. And so they are cash strapped and looking for revenue streams. And that's what this has become.
1: Yeah, if you uh, by policy cap how much you can adjust uh, your your fees for one uh, set of users, The natural incentive is to uh, look for – to increase the pool of uh, uncapped ones. So it is absolutely not a surprise, but uh, definitely a uh, predictable downstream result of uh, those various policies. Um,
0: There definitely are some fraudulent cases happening. There's been a few stories in the last month of like diploma mills, frankly – just exploiting this entirely and leaving people out to dry. There was a high-profile story of uh, international students forced to sleep under a bridge because they got here, but then the school kind of just, like, abandoned them. And so that definitely needs to be dealt with. That's not a federal issue, though. We should note, like, the, the immigration cap yeah, and, or the visas uh, are.
1: Well, I mean, if it's fraudulent, yeah. it probably impact. there's probably a criminal code uh, thing that is federal on that, but – um Yeah, like, that should be tackled because fraud is bad, and should be uh, prosecuted. Yeah, more generally, it's fine, it's just there's a lot of this stuff that has uh, grown pretty precipitously without governments actually doing much to uh, deal with the very obvious consequences of that, and now the federal government's making noises about uh, possibly capping it, possibly looking at other options, Just a bit of a trying to close the uh, barn door after the horses have bolted, but uh, uh, it's a sign that governments at least maybe partially discovered uh, their political like, antenna uh. again. It's weird, though, because like this... The whole framing around this thing from the government feels very off-brand for the liberals.
0: They're not they're like, pitching f- the cap though. They've kind of said it's not a hundred percent off the floor, but
1: it, well, it's being like part of the discussion. But they're not like this is what we'll, we're yeah. supposed looking to do. The whole thing's being I think like, the biggest
0: challenge here is uh, so much blame is it. not being put where it belongs, which is on the provinces. Like the federal government does have control over visas and could do some things here short of a cap that you know, discourage this from being exploited so much, but like it's the provinces who run and oversee the colleges and universities. And I should say some of these international students do go into the public school system through, uh, exchange programs. And here in Metro some school districts rely quite heavily on this. I think Burnaby actually had a significant, uh, Deficit on its budget in 2020 because all their international students couldn't come and You know, that's a provincial failing that public school districts and universities are becoming so reliant and taking this um, Pathway to fund their programs. So BC needs to step up Ontario really needs to step up. I know they've really uh, loosened a lot of things there Uh, and yeah in terms of the federal side I don't know just ban them from going to private schools I don't know (laughs) that's just my own
1: bias. (laughs) I mean like we talked about a couple weeks ago I I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, using the foreign students to help uh, offset some of the costs there's a logical economic case to uh basically be part of your exports to the world being uh the human capital from training people at your universities and if that gets capitalized into the economy via um lower um fees charged on students uh from within Canada or uh letting the tax dollars that uh, governments raise get allocated to other uses. That's not the worst thing. You let it go too far overboard, it can become problems. But, I, in and of itself, I don't necessarily think it's ro- terrible that uh, universities are generating a decent chunk of revenue this way. It's all of the downstream effects on like the housing market and everything else that uh, is just. The result of a whole bunch of things gumming up the works throughout the system and nobody actually making sure things work properly holistically on it.
0: So yeah, we'll see what the government does, if anything, on this question, but just the uh but just the change in numbers is is not nothing. It is it is a thing. So there's
1: Yeah, and
0: There's externalities to like be you said, addressed. This is, isn't I think, part- the issue.
1: Yeah, at certainly to be addressed, and like you said, this isn't primarily driven by federal policy, but at the same time, th- there is a federal ministry that is responsible for actually handling all of the processing of all of these visas and everything, and the fact that this didn't make its way up to the political level, or if it did, nobody actually took a look and said, do, do we have to actually take a second look at this or consider how this affects other policies, is itself a problem and is a sign that uh, things are breaking down in how they they should be working within the current government. And that's not great and probably a sign that uh, the Trudeau government is well past its best before date in a lot of ways, just because when those sorts of things start breaking down, it's... Usually a sign a government is closer to the end of its term than at the start of its time and power.
0: Well, it's for having 900,000 international students, that's kind of the number that CIBC estimates that StatsCan has completely missed of non-permanent residents living in the, in the country. Uh, we have kind of a back and forth between Statistics Canada and this Uh, CIBC Capital Markets report this week, where StatsCan says its data tables are pretty accurate on non-permanent residents, but for no specific reason, they are going to reissue them next month. Uh, But they stand by their previous numbers.
1: Uh, The previous numbers are fine. They're just going to recalculate them all with a new methodology, which is no way (sighs) suspicious at all.
0: The CIBC Capital Markets report basically argues that we have missed a number of non-permanent residents for a few, like, you know, technical... Like, it's hard hard to count people. For technical reasons? It actually is. (laughs) Because people move around, especially people who are non-permanent residents who are international students, um, who are temporary foreign workers, and people who overstay their visa, whether intentionally or not.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. The... uh, c i v c report identified as yeah people overstaying their visa the way the stat scan system currently works is that thirty days after expiration their models mechanically assume that the people have then left the country um whether or not they actually do uh so that's one apparently quite big source of error uh as well as um just how the census questions are worded about who has to actually, or census information or directions are worded about who needs to uh, fill those out, particularly for students who are, who at some point during the year return home, whether or not they have to fill it out. So in theory under this, if uh, someone was, at school for eight months of the year, but then over the break, visited home. They had a very reasonable interpretation. They could look at that and go, Oh, I don't need to fill this out because for a part of the year, I lived with my parents, ergo, not filling it out. And they estimate that that alone could account for a uh, 250,000 person error and like, on the numbers. The
0: point to this, yeah.
1: It's about a quarter of what the overall uh, apparent miss is, like, according to them. The- the point so of this
0: is governments make policy decisions based on how many people there are and they expect to see and if there's you know hundreds of thousands or a million people more than we thought then they may not have planned to build as many homes or provide as many services and so forth um which you know isn't an unreasonable point I don't think the government was going to build enough homes regardless, because they haven't, but maybe maybe they would have been a little bit more eager to if they had counted the people right.
1: Yeah, it's two and a half percent, which is not nothing. That's like a, yeah, estimates are hard. Well, and it's it's undoubtedly not even, right? It's probably undercounting
0: people in major cities. Like I doubt they got the population of Tumblr Ridge that wrong unless there's a high temporary foreign worker population there. But like the non-permanent residents are not evenly distributed through Canada, I wouldn't imagine. So it affects.
1: No, in fact, they're probably concentrated in the areas that are facing the most acute housing shortage.
0: Data matters. Science matters. (laughs) I'm really curious to see what StatsCan's new numbers come out with next month. Maybe we have 42 million people in this country. From informing government on the right number of people to informing parents if their children might be trans or just want to change their pronouns or name in school, it's a rough it's a rough transition here. But we have a growing number of provinces. Start first New Brunswick, now Saskatchewan and Ontario is also looking at doing this, looking at implementing educational policies that no educational experts have been calling for but a number of socially conservative groups have been tell based around like a form of parental consent or parental rights where parents should get the ability to decide whether or not their children under 16 can go by a different name and pronouns in their classroom and this doesn't mean that like little andrew gets to be called andy only with parental c- permission obviously that's okay, but if little Andrew wants to be called uh, Allie, I don't know, or Adriana.
1: Andrew was probably the closest. But...
0: That needs parental permission. Um, there's been an uproar in New Brunswick since that was announced. Uh, it's tough to say how it'll go in the other provinces. I know there's already a legal challenge being planned if it hasn't already launched in New Brunswick pointing out that policies like this out trans kids to parents who may not be welcoming or supportive and that endangers them. And this will either force them to stay closeted or put them in dangerous situations. And it also puts teachers in dangerous situations because many teachers are probably trying to provide a safe space for students in their classrooms. Um, this This is ugly policy and I'm really... Uh, disappointed to see this come, to say the least. Pierre Polyev weighed in, and initially he had said that Trudeau should butt out of the New Brunswick policies, and now he says LGBTQ issues should be left to parents as the Conservative Party is looking to debate uh, some other anti-trans measures at its upcoming policy convention next week.
1: Well, oh, and the other vague story or big news item related to this week is there was a Angus Reid poll uh, that came out looking at uh, what Canadians' uh, views on this question were, and the uh, numbers I think got a lot of people by surprise, just in terms of how much consensus there was within the country on this. Uh, so this was a uh, whole of three thousand ish Canadians. Um and top line numbers uh fourteen percent of Canadians say neither uh parents should be neither informed nor have to say it it's up to their child. Uh thirty-five parents must be informed if their children wants to identify differently and forty three for be informed and give consent uh numbers vary a bit across the country um I think most notably Atlantic Canada, where this has been a discussion for a longer period of time uh slightly less on the informed and give consent down to thirty four with uh parents should be uh should have no role in it up to twenty three per cent
0: the the partisan breakdown is and, uh, probably the least surprising conservatives uh, are the most supportive of requiring parents be informed and give consent, and New Democrats the least. Although, even there?
1: Even that is uh, 55% for the uh, some version of parental involvement in there among NDP. So you have pluralities or majorities in all parties uh, on th- – Agree in that, so I don't limits.
0: particularly care about the numbers for two reasons: Number one, human rights aren't up to popular vote, just straight up doesn't matter <laughs> uh and number two, the question itself, coming here from Angus Reed is. Quote, in New Brunswick, a proposed policy change would require parental consent for children younger than 16 who wish to change their preferred pronoun or name. Which policy do you prefer? And then it lists the options you talked about. And like, it's not the worst question, but I feel like when you lead off with here is something that's being done, it implies it's legitimate in some ways. Versus if you would also add it in, this policy is opposed by... Many trans groups and human rights groups, actually. In fact, most to all of them, that would influence. Like, I feel like this is an uninformed take from Canadians. Like, we don't have a strength, a sense of how strongly people care about this either.
1: So, there's an element of you should always be wary of novel polling questions, and which is why, in particular, I was interested in what the Atlantic Canada numbers are because that is a place where this has been an ongoing discussion for well it's quite been a while. in
0: one of four provinces I'm, in Atlantic Canada.
1: Yeah, but like Atlantic Atlantic Canada's not that big. Like the the there are not firewalls at the borders between the provinces. There's there's a fair bit of uh cross inter-interprovincial uh, interpro, uh, interprovincial, uh Information that goes back and forth, the news stories and whatnot, uh, on there.
0: But Polyev's uh, decision to well, I guess he didn't actively decide, as far as I can tell, to weigh into this. He's been asked about it a few times, but um,
1: he's more critical of true Joe Wayne than he is. Well, that was in his first set of comments back in June,
0: his more recent ones was uh, at Pakistan Independence Day in Toronto earlier this month. And he was speaking on an Urdu-Hindi TV channel, as you do. Outreach is important. I'm not slamming that. But he talked about it's not the Canadian way for the Prime Minister to tell a Muslim man that his values are American because he wants to pass on traditional teachings to his children. Uh, And then...
1: I mean, that is a statement that if found like, the Canadian citizenship guide nobody would really bat an eye about.
0: Yeah, like, he's choosing his words cleverly. He says, you know, every parent should have the freedom to raise their kids with their own values, which is, like, fine, but the little bit, schools should stick to teaching math, reading, and writing, the basics, isn't that what schools are supposed to be teaching anyway? That bit's getting a bit, like, schools obviously do a lot more than that they should teach you how to think. (laughs) And that requires a little bit more than just knowing how to read and write. Uh, Science is a class as well. Um, Anyway, conservatives can't avoid a good cultural culture war issue. It seems like.
1: Well, I mean, it's not like the liberals haven't uh, jumped on. this. Conservatives
0: started this one. Every province was doing fine. Every province has gender identity and expression in its human rights codes the Conservative Government of New Brunswick opted to make a political hay out of trans kids' lives. And it's disgusting, Scott. I don't care that Justin Trudeau is critical of it. That's probably a good thing, given policies like this will kill trans kids.
1: I am not sure it is quite that black and white. It 100% is. there There
0: is strong data showing that if trans kids don't have space... Okay, Safe places to go. They end up homeless. If
1: you're uh, okay, if the the outcome of your analysis is that eighty percent of Canadians are cool with killing trans kids, that's probably means there's something there's a breakdown somewhere. It that means people don't understand the issue, everything.
0: and politicians are willing to exploit that to appeal to reactionary bases. I'm not saying Canadians.
1: So, eighty percent of Canadians are reactionary
0: no they're ignorant of the issue, and politicians should be better than just appealing to well, people seem to support this thing that wasn't an issue th- four months ago like there's no there's no good defense for bringing this in
1: so there is so there is uh two principles at play here: there's the ones that you've well articulated and outlined. Um, and yeah, that the safety of children should absolutely be a factor, but there is also a general principle that parents should be involved in their children's lives and know what's going on there, including what's happening at school. And there are cases where those two principles are sometimes in tension with each other and exactly how the balancing between those. To go is a matter of judgment on, and which reasonable people can disagree. I don't and disagree
0: with that, right? Like, I'm the, not sure that the clear thing here, though, is
1: uh, say, yeah, I'm not sure that saying just because someone hasn't come to the same spot on where the balancing line should be as you, that they are reactionary or ignorant or um, hate trans kids or want to see trans kids dead is a fair or charitable read on any of that, or kind of reflects the actual complexities of having to balance two considerations here. And yeah, like I would not have said this is anywhere near a top issue that a province should necessarily proactively go out and mess around with the uh, specifics on, but at the same time there very much is a balancing act here and overall the, this is a there is at some give and take that would need to happen here and when 80% of Canadians feel that there's a role for parents in this, that does need to be reflected to a certain extent in policy. You're
0: putting way too much stock in one poll, though. We don't really know how Canadians feel. And I think the big challenge we have with children's issues is there isn't a broad understanding of what the law and the balance is in Canada. And yes, parent- parents obviously have a role in their kids' lives, but they don't have rights over their children. Kids have their own set of rights. Canada is a signatory of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. That means that the best interests of the child take precedent in disputes. This is why sometimes parents get their kids taken away, because sometimes parents aren't acting with those best interests. And that's why parents should be involved for a kid to you know, thrive. They need parents who love them and get involved in their lives and are informed of how that's going. But this duty to inform parents and to put parents over their children in a hierarchical um, way that this kind of policy does undermines sure that. And it.
1: Full- parents
0: don't have fundamental rights over their children in this country. You have a duty to your child. And responsibility but you don't get to
1: being I and you're don't generally think given being kept a, a informed of what is happening with your this children. isn't about
0: inform though this is a consent this is about consent for your child to live their own way the specific laws the specific language in that poll is about consent
1: well there's Two it it asks two different questions there's one about, oh, there's two uh, different
0: policies fine.
1: informed and there's one about informed and consent and I mean more generally, parents do have a role w- with respect to providing consent for their children a whole bunch of areas uh,
0: yes, but that also is it varies with the age of the child, and our courts have also recognized the ability of mature minors to consent to varying things about their own body uh, that varies depending on the severity and their age. And 16 is way too old because the things we're talking about here, names and pronouns don't really matter. And it doesn't really matter if your 12 or 14 year old wants to be called something else at school. They should be able to consent to that. And a court would easily find that I would bet. These policies aren't going to hold up in court. It's just a shame that they will have to be fought over.
1: Uh yeah, well, we'll have to see. So like the um Saskatchewan policy does have a specific um carve out in it for when uh there is a the safety of the child is affected by it and there are reasons not to disclose. So depending on the specifics there could vary I, I could see a court finding it on balance to be reasonable but we'll have to see.
0: Rounding off the show. Uh, in terms of things the government, I guess, is talking about doing, the the Minister of Public Safety, Dominic LeBlanc, uh, has come back. I think we talked about this two weeks ago. That he was supposed to come back like the next day with the progress update on, or at least the res- it was supposed to I think actually be the response to the recommendations from the Emergencies Act inquiry. Trudeau had promised we'd get a response six months after the recommendations came out. And now six months and a few weeks, we are told that they are making progress and uh, we'll have a more fulsome answer in another six months on how things are going.
1: So uh, in Paul Wells' latest piece, he observed that a lot of... uh, the Trudeau government's recent uh, efforts have had a uh, "late, my dog ate my homework" uh, quality to them, and this feels no different. By the way, if you're not subscribed to uh, Paul Well Substack, you're definitely missing out. Um, so, quick plug for that. Um, yeah, if you're a fan of government communication saying that stuff is going on, but we haven't actually done anything conclusive on it. This is an announcement that is right up your alley. If you're actually wanting a government that does stuff, you will be disappointed on this.
0: They are promising that they're not even promising legislative changes that match the recommendations for what needs to change in the emergencies act, other than they're still looking very deeply at whether they should change and update the emergencies act. Uh, they are, considering policing reforms they have identified they say they've protected or at least made progress on protecting critical trade and transportation corridors um yeah everything is pretty much in progress this is a great update and finally we do have an, a new conflict of interest and in ethics commissioner after it came out that uh we've been going out with one for a while no no well
1: we have an interim <laughs> He's a conflict and ethics commissioner because apparently we can't appoint an actual one in this country.
0: Congrats, Conrad Winrich von Finkenstein. Um, you have a job for six yes. months,
1: and also would probably win public servant. Uh, most likely to also be a character in a young adult novel. That is,
0: I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh at people's names, but th- yeah, it that, is that a is genuinely a very funny-sounding funny name.
1: <laughs> and and does. Sound like something out of a fantasy novel or something. Um, yeah. Ancient rats at the same time. Like, what the hell is wrong with the government that they can't actually get around to appointing a permanent person to this role?
0: Uh, everyone in Ottawa or in the country who might be able to hold the role is connected to the Liberal government, I bet.
1: Well, I mean, their last one was what the sister-in-law of Dominic LeBlanc is that it fairly close Something familial like that. relation with a minister, so like that was obviously a no-go. It was weird they thought they could get away with it. Um,
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry. His full name with title is Conrad Winrich Graf Fink von Finkenstein. The Graf, the Graf usually translates to count. <laughs> It's Count von Okay, I'm definitely
1: doubling down on the, uh, this is a person out of a fantasy novel. If they are a count as well.
0: Oh, he was a former chairman of the CRTC. And, uh, stirred up controver- controversy over usage-based billing. Cool. Anyway. Hope we don't have any ethics scandals well, in the I mean, next six months, and that in that time we can find a real I mean, commissioner. The, the Liberal Party, is, the I Liberal
1: Party of Canada, is famous for its uh, commitment to ethics and never doing anything questionable ever that would require a uh, investigation by the ethics commissioner. So this should all be great. Exactly. And that has been PlayGhost. Find links to everything we talked about at playghost.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at Patreon.com/PlayGhost. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. PlayGhost is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.